0: We got the date and the time right.
1: Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scoob Obsessed episode 276 recorded live March 17, 2016. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we have water. Uh, we have a little bit of sun, and we are heading into that time of the year where it only gets better from here on out. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How you doing today, Mac?
0: I'm doing very well. I'm just waiting for the snow to fall on the first day of spring.
1: <laughs> Is that something that you look forward to?
0: I have heard that we're going to have snow, so let's just find out.
1: <laughs> uh, you know it's bound to happen. You, you can never get past the first day of spring and not have snow.
0: I haven't put my bench outside the front yet because every time <laughs> I freaking do that, it snows on it. So I've been leaving it out, you know, put away. Uh-huh. I almost got it out this weekend, but I, I didn't.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, you, you, about the only time I can say you can get certain you're not going to have any measurable has got to be May, even though I have seen snow all the way into June, but, but May you're, you're pretty safe. You're not going to have more than a half an inch and it's not going to stay most of the day.
0: Yeah, I don't mind flurries.
1: Yeah, yeah, a little I bit of
0: really doesn't get cold again because it's starting to bud already. Oh yeah, focuses are up already. Uh, the tree behind me, I can't think of what the hell it is, but it's yellow and it's starting to bud. Yeah, and I they did that a couple of years ago and had that hard freeze. Well, kills them Screwed all. up the cherries and the grapes bad.
1: Yeah, the grapes. I've been driving through the grape orchards, which I happen to live through the middle of, and you can see they get kind of that. It's kind of a, a haze, a pink color to them, and that's all the buds and. Sap starting to move through the grapes, so we get we get a hard freeze, and it's not and they don't have moisture on the vines when it happens, they can have some damage. Especially on some of the some of the varieties can't handle the cold, but we are in that wine area of Michigan, and it, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I, I see that on my way to work, they added and they've got a new winery going in that will be opening up this year.
0: Yeah, I came back through the backroads when I was. Uh, I did a program last week at uh, in Buchanan, yeah. and then coming back through it, it's like I took the backroads, and it's like, wow, where are all these new wine places? <laughs> Seriously, yeah. and not only that, take a look how many places got those hop lines out for oh, making yes. beer.
1: Yeah, hops, all over the place. Yeah, there's a there's a companies trying to. I won't say monopoly, but they really want to dominate the market here, and Michigan doesn't even really rank. Uh, cause I even looked at putting hops in my property. I've got about 12 acres here I could put in, but the cost is ridiculous. I mean, you can spend a lot cause it's high poles and then you have to figure out how to harvest them. And I just, it, it, it would, it would take about 15 to 20 years to pay off your original investment. So I decided it wasn't quite worth it, but somebody thinks it's worth it cause they're putting them in all over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, last week we didn't record, but we did record the the week before. Depending on how you're getting the show, you may have only had the show earlier this week, so I've been a little slow on editing and getting everything all processed together, but we should be caught up now. Uh, the reason for the delay is we've been, I've been working on my, uh, daughter and son's robotics team. I'm the programming mentor, and they had their first competition this last week. So most of the primary building's done, and they did the competition. Out of 40 teams, they ended up coming in second, in the, in the, in the second alliance, so uh did real well so next competitions in about 3 weeks uh, so we'll we'll probably have three or four Thursdays where we won't be recording coming up here again uh, right now they're on track if they do even half as well as they did this last time they'll be going to the state competition and the nationals are a week and a half after that which uh looks like they you know hopefully will be making uh we well i I, was say,
0: I know that the uh, high school was busy all day they had tons and tons of people come to yeah. the uh, robotics demonstration
1: yeah. and show. Yeah. Yeah, St. Joe, this is the third year Ford in St. Joe. Um, last year we won it, Bering Springs won in St. Joe, and this is the first year I think St. Joe's actually won at St. Joe. So uh the St. Joe Alliance is the one that came in first. They, they had a really nice robot this year. They're doing really well. So they're they're going to be a tough competitor. And it's good for this side of the state. Uh, usually Michigan is a, is one of the dominant states for the the first robotics competition, and then you've got uh, the east side because of all the automotive, but the west side is uh, because that's where a lot of the components that are put together on the east side come from the west side. So we have a nice uh, machining and die-making background.
0: Lakeshore should have an edge next year because they're getting that, uh, oh, I think it's like a $100,000 worth of CNC equipment from that one manufacturer for their CNC program. Oh, good. And they ought to be able to develop and or generate yeah. lots of parts and pieces.
1: Yeah, they had a nice booth this year. Their robot, yeah, it was kind of about middle of the pack. Uh, out of 40 robots, there's about six or seven that I would say are competitive, and the rest are are doing it because it's really a learning process. It's about analyzing the problem, uh, looking for solutions, engineering it, and then executing. And you really kind of come into your own. And how you do it. And we, we've we got some really good mentors. And then I'm not referring to me. I'm referring to the people who are there before me. Uh, some engineers from Whirlpool. Um, some people who have done robotics for a long time. Because our team's really new, other than a couple seniors coming back. And we're small. We've only got nine team members. Uh, St. Joe had like 50.
0: Well, I'm hoping that everybody locally does well. So we may be able to partner with them and have them shift their focus to ROV.
1: Yes. Uh, and and uh, there is an alliance. Uh, of the teams in this part of the state, and that might be a program that we should pitch to them, see if they'd be interested. Because a lot of your teams, like if you look at the, the, the teams in California that are sponsored by Google or NASA, those teams compete and work all year round. Ours. What, what kind
0: of funding do they ask for? Or do they get from others? Do you know? Well,
1: it depends. Bering Springs, we're fortunate in that the school is supporting us, and Michigan's one of the few states that the, st- at the state level, they support it. But it costs a minimum of about $10,000 to put a team on uh, per year.
0: Whoa, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, the entry fees are in the thousands of dollars, and you enter into two events. And then if you make it to state, there's another entry fee. And if you make it to nationals, there's another entry fee. Plus, when you're traveling a distance, you've got the uh, hotel, food, lodging. Uh, so it, it can get to be quite pricey. Uh, what they do is they have a rookie program, so the first year you're in it, your entry fee gets you what they call it's a kit of parts and you get more as your rookie team to help you get because you've got uh in in you may want to fast forward if you're not in if you're just waiting for scuba we'll tie this in eventually but uh you've got a main processor it's called a Roborio that's about eight hundred dollars and the good teams you need at least two if not three of those so you've got a backup. The really good teams build a completely second robot, which we have we haven't been able to do this year next year that's one of our goals uh you've got motors uh you know a robot will have six or seven motors typically you've got uh power distribution panels you've got um usually some sort of sensors and then you've got a drive base with frames and wheels and all this ends up uh you can spend you're only allowed to spend about uh this year they raised it it was normally four thousand on your robot you could spend up to six thousand and there are ways if the, if the kids fabricate the parts, meaning that they take the blocks of aluminum and they machine it, and mill it themselves, other than the cost of the raw material, they don't need to account for it in that $6,000. Uh, if you pay somebody to do it, you have to account for the time. The exception is if that person, if that company who's doing it is a sponsor and somebody from the, from that company is a mentor. And this year we're fortunate in that we have a a four axis master machinist is a, is a mentor and his company has sponsored the team. We also have a, a manufacturing maintenance engineer, you'd call him. He's a guy who, who he repairs equipment for die and machine companies. So he's got this rolling factory on wheels plus a shop. And that's where we've had our frame and the welding done. And then you've got team members like my son, who's a welder. And, you know, uh, the machinist son is also learning machinist. So it, it's really good in combining all these skills together. It's it's an excellent program. And I, I they, one of the things that they always talk about every year is they're going to do an underwater competition, which hasn't happened. But uh, there are schools uh, at the high school level who are doing underwater competitions. So I don't think it would be out, uh, too unusual to pitch something like that and see where they could come, what they could come up with. So I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room tonight. We have, we did, we fired up TalkShoe. We may do this. Just drop us a line if you're interested and you want to know where the chat room is. We haven't always been doing it because attendance has been a little low and it can be a pain, but we haven't found anything better so far than TalkShoe, even though I know it's there. Uh, we've kicked around the idea of doing video other than hassle and bandwidth. You know, some people are doing a lot with Twitch. Uh, if you're in the big cities and you got tons of bandwidth, I've seen people do three or four services, Google or YouTube, uh, streaming. But right now we're doing audio only. We'll, we'll be doing video here soon. My first two attempts haven't worked, so that's why you haven't seen it. But again, thanks Vanessa and Surfer George. And We're going to jump right on into the news. The uh, first article is a follow-up. We have an ex-treasure hunter who's been kept in jail over gold found. U.S. judge is keeping former treasure hunter in jail, again failing to answer questions about the location of 500 commemorative gold coins discovered from a 19th century shipwreck. Thomas Tommy Thompson, 63, Columbus, Ohio, was arrested in 2005 and jailed because he failed to appear in court to disclose the whereabouts of gold coins discovered in 1988. And the wreck of the SS Central America. Last December Thompson was sentenced to one year of supervised release, a two hundred fifty thousand dollar fine and two hundred and eight service hours of community service, but the sentence was not taken would not take effect until he revealed where the coins were. On Monday, US District Judge Algernon Marbley of Ohio found Thompson in contempt of court and order a civil lawsuit over the treasure said Jennifer Thornton, a spokesperson spokesperson for the US Attorney's Office in Columbus. Marbley also continued a daily fine of $1,000 until Thompson reveals the location of the treasure. Thompson's lawyer cannot immediately be reached for comment. Thompson told the court in December that he had a stroke and suffered from chronic fatigue syndrome, short-term memory loss, and other physical problems. He apologized then for not appearing in court previously to answer questions. Thompson and his former assistant girlfriend, Allison Anticure, pled guilty last April to c- criminal contempt after they were arrested in January 2015. The two have been living in Florida Hilton Hotel under fake names and paying with cash after a 2013 arrest warrant was issued in a civil lawsuit over the proceedings of the shipwreck discovery. So what's your thought on this?
0: <laughs> well, a $1,000 a day, and that's been almost at least half a year. That's a lot of money. and I, I'm not quite sure I understand that if he had told them where it was, He'd uh had what one year of supervised release, paid a fine, and been
1: done with this. Do you think it's because he he has so much money that he's willing to wait him out?
0: I don't think you'll have that much money. Besides, if you're in freaking prison,
1: you a lot of fun. You can't spend it.
0: And when he talked about the stroke he had, I think I would have pled uh, not short term but long term memory loss, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. I don't remember where it was. Yeah.
1: And I'm not advocating you do this, but wouldn't you think if you were him? That you would have taken two or three stashes and stashed yeah. it. And then yeah. when they wanted you to release it, you just say, Oh, well, yeah, you, know, you maybe you wait six months. So they really think that they're sweating you out and you go, here, here's the stash, but the rest of it I spent. Cause who, are, who are them to say that you, that wasn't all of it?
0: Yeah. Uh, he, he was obviously a little bit devious. So that's something right. he might have done.
1: Yeah. But he doesn't appear to he wants to share any of it.
0: But then again, he, he may not remember. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Th- I think that's what he's he's trying to to do here. He's trying to give his lawyer something saying, well, his memory loss and other physical problems are preventing him from being able to tell.
0: I just know that if he had five hundred coins, and if you went for the bullion value, you're still talking less than a million.
1: Mm-hmm. And if
0: you're talking numismatic, okay, you got more than a million.
1: But it's not a lot.
0: It's not worth it until you sell it, and right. to sell
1: it, you have to have it. Well, right. Plus. They're pretty recognizable.
0: Well, depends if you sell it other than the United States. And quite often, you know, if you're trying to get rid of hot stuff, you'll pay it to an unknown and take a you know, huge yeah. discount. But you got the money. Yeah. Not that I know anything about that. No, of course. Way, I'd
1: like to have a lot of money so I can do that. <laughs> not that we found, like, huge chests of gold when we're diving on the Havana.
0: Yeah, not not in Niles River, you're not. <laughs>
1: And then how about this one for a little bit of a ride? Scuba diver gets sucked into a nuclear power plant down in Florida, and it looks like he wants to sue.
0: Yeah, I'm going to have a problem with this and a couple of items. You know, there is a buoy. Well, I wasn't close enough to read the label that said stay away. <laughs> Second one, I cannot believe that's an open intake because uh, I know the ones I dive around here are not open intakes. Unless the grills are down, you deliberately went into them. Uh-huh. Uh, access cover on one of them I know about. You can read the sign, that says, stay the hell off, except during the spring or in the summer when the algae covers up the sign. Right. But it's only a you know a couple of feet opening on the top. It's got a hatch. Yeah. So how he got sucked in, like he's talking, I am very curious about that.
1: Yeah. Now, now, just so people who are maybe new to the show don't understand, you have a little bit of experience in this area, having worked at a nuclear plant as a diver.
0: Correct. And as a sport diver, <laughs> it was really nice for Palisades or a couple of them near us, is they had the same setup of three intake tunnels off, uh, offshore and two discharge offshore. And they are big enough to drive a, a big bus through. But the ones that we have are embedded in a crid, And in the crid you've got sides to it that are open, but a body can't get through it. Now, if the ice impacts have knocked a section down, then you can't. But in Florida, I don't think you got much ice.
1: No, I'm not picturing they do.
0: So I would be very surprised if they did not have a grill section. And I don't mean nets. I'm talking foot square uh-huh. uh, of a pipe, or in this case, it's, it's big iron. So you're not going to get sucked into it. And if you make yourself big and go to it, you can sort of get yourself plastered to it but you can peel yourself away from it, get that side angle and get the hell out of the way.
1: Right. Because they, they've you, engineered it for not because in Florida, not only are you going to have divers and people, but you've got aquatic life that you yeah. want to get out. Am, and by the same token, that doesn't get chewed up by the pumps. What it
0: does is it goes to the pipes and it goes to what they call, it's like a big swimming pool and they call it a four bay. Some places it's covered up like here because you don't want to freeze over -hmm. But it's a four bay. You've got different grills in it that prevents people and or big objects from getting near the pumps, which you don't want. And you have that before you get to the the screens that filter the water before it gets to the pumps. Right. So you're going to, you've got a couple of layers of protection to prevent persons or big animals getting in there. So if you do get in, you're not going to swim against it. I'll tell you that average pumps, there's about 250,000 gallons a minute per pump. And if you got three or four or five or six or seven of those sucking on water, that's a little bit of a head, you know, you're not going to swim against it. But once you get into the four bay, you know, you got light, you got air. You can always come to the surface and breathe, inflate your BC and depend on what kind of four bay they have. It may be a while before somebody can hear you yelling for help.
1: <laughs> so here's what they're saying at the, the plant. This is according to the uh, St. Lucie nuclear power plants, uh, of Florida light and power. Uh, the diver is saying he did not see any warning signs anywhere, anywhere in the area, but a FPL spokesman said there's writing on the buoys that says stay back 100 feet. Uh said nothing is more important than our safety at the nuclear plant, which is the reason we have protective over-intake piping. The diver intentionally swam into one of the intake pipes after bypassing a piece of equipment to minimize the entry of objects, which is, is kind of what we're assuming because you, you're – it's, if you're out diving, you're, you know, when you come from natural to man-made.
0: Well, you gotta have your, your charts, and the charts should be labeled. Right. Intake, pump, and when you look on shore half a mile away at a nuclear power plant.
1: Right. Duh. Well, and then the, the question is, how do you get that close? Cause here in Michigan, they're getting a little bit wiggy when you get near the plant.
0: Right, you now have, um uh, Buoys on the perimeter of the plant property and you're not to go there. The Coast Guard will come out and talk to you. And if you, if you are, uh, loitering around out there, you probably will have a helicopter come out there and start checking on you and it yes. won't be a company one.
1: Yes. Yeah. They're not really too understanding and in, in our environment now with terrorist threats, uh, you really don't want to spend too much time in the area. Uh, yeah. Cause I'm sure that anytime when we're out, going by the plant there's people in binoculars looking at us making sure that we don't look too sus- suspicious or get too close
0: you are on camera when you're out there near that intake yeah.
1: and, and i know of working security and other facilities not at the nuclear plant that some of the cameras i've got now have really good zooms
0: absolutely night vision and all
1: yeah yeah so yeah he's he, to not be intercepted before he got there meant that uh it, it almost seems to be intentional to me i mean i
0: It'll be interesting to see where the lawsuit goes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because why would you instantly all of a sudden do lawsuit? That just seems like somebody looking for a money grab.
0: Yeah, I read one of the events on it and then part of the phone call because the, the di- second diver came back up and said he he went down the pipe, came up. Of course, his wife is on board the other boat and going nuts. Mm-hmm. So she's calling 911. So it sounded really good from what I was hearing from the surface, meaning the lady the phone call, mm-hmm. but again, I know the grill work, you get down there, it's it's not as simple as you made it sound.
1: You just don't stumble into it. No. And what people who aren't knowledgeable, they're probably hoping that people believe it's like you've got this super strong current going in. Now, let let's play devil's advocate. Say there was an obstruction down there that restricted half the intake, so you've now got the normal volume of water that plant uses, but only going through half the area, would that increase the volume to the point where you could kind of get sucked in from a distance? It would
0: create a suction. You'd be up against your grill work. Okay. But unless you went through a hole or a opening that was designed for you to go through it, you're not going to go through it unless the screen is down or something. That's what we used to call them as screens. Mm -hmm. They're not like a screen screen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's kind of what I figured. Yeah, you know, we'll have to we'll have to see how it plays out, but it does does sound a little yeah. suspicious. Yeah.
0: it's a good thing he was wearing a wetsuit because I'm sure he had a few moments on that ride from <laughs> entry to exit.
1: Yeah, because even if you now let's say what what would the the point of somebody be? I mean, other than saying it was an elaborate scheme to try and get sucked in, uh would they be down there maybe looking for fishing lures?
0: I was thinking if you're around the intake structures, you're looking for downriggers like we used to do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Before they made it, uh you couldn't do it, meaning after 9-11. Yep. Uh, up until that point, we could dive out there. It was good fishing. Mm-hmm. So we dived the intake structures because it would capture downriggers. They'd get tangled up on the outcroppings and the screens we're talking about. Yes. So we'd harvest them. Mm-hmm. It used to be very, very lucrative. Yeah. And then they made it off limits for us and the fishermen. So nobody goes there.
1: Yeah, so there probably isn't a whole lot of downriggers anymore because you're not supposed to be there anyway. Correct. Okay, well, next one we have is from undercurrent.org. It's Dive Magazine. They say, a death attributed to rental gear, article posted in March 2016. In New Zealand, uh, a coroner in January, Brant Shortland, after investigating a 2013 death of a Kiwi physician, Diving the world class wreck of the Coolidge put much of the blame on the death on faulty rental gear. Shortland said the equipment provided by Auk Marine to Dr. Usande was substandard. The air in her dive cylinders, which had a high water content, would have failed New Zealand standards, and the cylinder contained foreign material, most likely from cleaning. The cylinder valve may have been damaged, and the cylinder possibly overfilled. There are no records of when it was last tested. Her regulator was in extremely dire condition, should have been replaced with 10 grams. 10 kilograms of weights she was overweighted and had dive boots and fins that were too big she would have been working harder in the water and become more tired uh, the the coroner said the uh, the diver wasn't experienced enough to know her equipment wasn't safe in his defense aquamarine owner said he had bought the gear from the australian dive company a year earlier and only been in use for two months furthermore it had been in storage in the hot and humid conditions for about 10 minutes before police examined it Corner shorten claimed that uh, the doctor's lack of experience should have been clear to omarine as she w- as it would have been her ill-filtered equipment fitting equipment however it was also reported that the doctor had been diving nine years and this is her fourth dive on the Coolidge which seemed like she had plenty of experience to know good gear good gear from bad
0: and I would think so at that at that point
1: you would think so that you would at some point but The foreign material, there's no excuse for because that shows that you did a really crappy viz. Well, the key,
0: the key, it didn't say what, what the problem was. They said lousy regulator. So what piece killed her? Because overfilling the tank ain't going to kill you. No. And in fact, we sort of sometime may fudge on that.
1: Mm -hmm. It
0: gets a little more oak than there. You're not 10%. If you've got gravel and stuff, as long as it's on the bottom and not into the air valve, meaning, you know, and you've got the, the, um, the standpipe and stuff to prevent that. It's not really smart, but it doesn't interfere with the air generally. Well, so the tank didn't seem to do it. So I'm curious when she they said about the regulator.
1: Well, I'm thinking the reason they brought up the tank was just to show this is kind of the shoddiness that they do. But if you're a dive company and you buy gear from somebody else, are you not going to run and through, do it through a, a full overhaul?
0: Well, it said 10 months before people or police examined it. So I don't know how long it had been before they examined it that they had some issues.
1: So they said it had been used for two months. So they bought it a year earlier. So that's 10 months and then used it for two. So unless they, I mean, I guess if it's a, you know, the other dive shop you knew and you had a lot of confidence and it had been serviced right before you got it, you may have been, you would have been within your year servicing. Uh, so then in the, this article, they're saying what to check. So the takeaway for U.S. divers, whether experienced or inexperienced, is if you're running gear abroad, you must examine it carefully before letting your life depend on it. While you may only make a uh, minor exam, there are a few things you can do. Look for frayed hoses. If you have a pressure gauge, make sure the needle is at zero when not pressured. Put the regulator on the tank. And when the valve is turned off, check that you suck in, that it meets a solid resistance. should move. There are no air leaks. Make sure the mouthpiece has no holes.
0: All the tests they take are common items that one would do with their own gear, too. Right. You know, if the if the tank rattles when you shake it, well, duh. Uh, I, again, I wish they really gave us a, a better idea of what equipment they said failed that caused her death. Because if she's been on it, you know, the fourth dive, she had to be aware of what was going on. And she seemed to manage pretty good for, you know, three of the dives. And nine years of experience is nine years of experience.
1: Right. Now, this is a fourth dive with the same equipment. Yeah. Well, and I think it could depend on who you are. If you're somebody who's petite, maybe you're used to not being able to find stuff in your size and you've just gotten accustomed to it. Uh, Well, you you
0: might have a better follow-up since this was a March article. They mm -hmm. may have something down the pike. We can update it because I'm real curious to know what failed.
1: Yes. And you're ultimately responsible for yourself. So even... If they end up winning, it doesn't do you any good if you're the one who passed on. Yeah. So you can call a dive for any reason, and rental gear not being quite right is a valid one. And let's see this one. am going to try and get it to reload again. This is the former SASS Trooper. Whoops, it helps if I hit the right computer.
0: Is that before or after diving safety? Safer as we age? Oh, did I miss one? Uh, in my queue, I had diver safety as we age, so I was just curious. That came before the other one did.
1: Oh, I, I must have. Uh, did you? I, I skipped right past that.
0: Ah. I picked that one out because we are getting older. <laughs> Some of us are older than others.
1: Yeah. Getting older is better than the alternative. Because I'm probably, what, 20 years older than you just about? I would say so. I think that would be a safe bet because you're about the same age as my dad. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's about 20 years older than I am.
0: But we were talking about, you know, uh, actually in uh, in the dive meetings last month and the month before about issues as you get older, and this is one up here. But they were talking about in this one in the Pacific Northwest, they lost two older, experienced underwater photographers in one month. One was a 61-year-old female. One was a 69-year-old male. And one was on, I think, what they called uh, Vancouver Island. And this article, or th- those local death made these people start thinking about the safety of diving when we age and what should we be looking at. How does aging impact the diver? Um, as you get older, are you reviewing your dive protocols? Uh, and what are you doing about it? The other aspect is Dan talked about, you know, well, what medical conditions should be, you know, you'd be watching for. And like I said, they said, there is no theoretical age limit for diving uh, the key item they were saying is you do have physio- physiological changes as our bodies do age and we have to take those in consideration when we are diving and I thought that was quite interesting. Their key item was as an older diver you should stay in condition because as you get older you tend not to and up here that five months of winter kicks you in the butt if you're nothing but eating during Thanksgiving and yeah. Christmas and the holidays you may get a couple of pounds on And if you're not really in good shape and you get out there in a dry suit, you're going to get exhausted Mm -hmm. and your inability to self-rescue in an emergency goes down. The same thing with general health, your agility, your strength decreases with age, leg strength, your gripping aspects. And the one that I've noticed as I get older is maximum heart rate. At certain ages, you know, they say you shouldn't exceed a certain amount based on your age. Right. So you don't overstress it. And if you've got any hidden issues, over-stressing is going to give you a cardiac issue.
1: Well, and that's why when you do a physical and they do a stress test, that's what they're looking for.
0: Yeah, and that's why as you get older, you want to take it a lot easier in what you're doing. Like your oxygen intake, lung compl- uh, your compliance, or how it's flexible, it decreases with age. So dive exhaustion is what you really got to watch out for. Older divers are prone to getting cold, and I can... Tell you about that. Hyperthermia, they're more susceptible. And again, they're more susceptible to decompression sickness. So taking those into mind, one then plans and do, you know, they do their diver, their dive is different.
1: Yeah, don't, don't use the 20 somethings table for your dive tables. You might want to give yourself a little bit of extra buffer.
0: Well, it's like a lot of us use the geezer gas, you know, you get old, you're going to use the nitrox, but I use it on the air table to give me an edge. Uh, when we're diving the river, just because I could cross the river last year with a current doesn't mean I can do it this year, especially early in the season. I need to build myself back up if I let myself go. And again, just because I did it last year doesn't mean I can do it this year. And again, as I get older, it's sometimes harder to say no because I want to go diving. So you gotta, you know, you you gotta watch yourself a little bit too.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's easy to push yourself because mentally you may have that mental uh thought of, you know, I've done this before so, you know, the, the mind's willing but the body may not quite be there and that's why I think as a club we've consistently planned our dives in the beginning of the season to work up to the tougher dives and the deeper depths.
0: Yeah. Well, like the last couple of months what is what have we been talking about? Uh, all the time, hopefully safety is Hey, what, we're working under the ice, so what do we say? Watch out for free throw free throws. Make sure you got an ice regulator. Mm-hmm. Take a bailout, especially when you're under the ice. Uh, we've been talking about emergency protocol, uh, like last night, or on the meeting on Tuesday. What did we talk about? We need to redirect ourselves to those, what if you go diving and you lose your buddy, you come up, he's not there, what is your plan of action? A lot of it depended on what was your Call on the surface. What was your dive plan? Who is it? Is it somebody with a rebreather who's going to be there an hour longer than you? Because we do a lot of solos up here, but hopefully they're planned solos. Everybody knows what you're doing. Uh, So you got to be cautious.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to account for everything and dive within your ability, and it's not a race.
0: Right. And anticipate, well, what would I do if? What if I do get caught? What if I do lose my air? What if I do get really exhausted?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's the item. Keep that in your mind and use that as your guide. Yeah,
1: And, and we're fortunate because we've got a lot of experienced divers. Uh, we have things in the boat like we're making sure that we have O2 available. And we're diving conditions that we're familiar with. Uh, but if you're you know, on vacation and you're doing something different, then you need to account for that.
0: We, we do have a tendency that we babysit. Fledgling divers and those who do not have a lot of experience, based on what the dive is, with us.
1: Right. So we're, the profile. We're not a training agency, so we're, right. we're not we're not going to take somebody who doesn't know how to dive and train them to dive. You get that from your instructor. Right. But we aren't going to intentionally put you in a situation where we're not we're not comfortable with you being there because we've we've got to save ourselves and you if something happens. Right.
0: Our, our biggest issue is as we get older, we do have a lot of experience. And we have a tendency as we still do is solo. Yes. And that's because we're by ourselves. Some of these items could strike and, uh, yes. You might want to take that into account as we get older and we're learning to do that, I think. Yeah.
1: yeah and that's, and that's the thing with the with a solo dive is that if, you know, let's, let's say worst case scenario, you have a heart attack and somebody's not there. They can't help you because you know, by the time they find you, you've spit out your regulator and you're done. Right, and at
0: least on mine, especially in the river, I've already got a flag attached to me. So mm-hmm. at least you can know where my body is. Yeah. You're not going to be up there wondering where is he. Yeah. I mean, you may find me an hour too late, but you're going to find me. Yeah. And that's still better than not. Yeah.
1: Wow, this is a positive article.
0: <laughs> well, if you're supposed to think about it, because hey, every time you get in the water, you've got a potential.
1: Yes. So you got to make a plan for it, and it yeah. is a risk. It's uh sometimes we like to downplay it to family members because sometimes you. We may get a little bit more grief because it's as as much as I like to be played up, it is an extreme sport. You are taking your body into a condition that is not hospitable for human beings. We don't have gills. We can't breathe underwater. It is high pressure, but it is a blast. It's a lot of fun.
0: Well, we spend a lot of time shallow water. You're talking less than 10 feet, not in fast currents, grubbing for bottles. You can always come up because quite often you're in six or seven feet at, at most because yes. you're right near the shore. And we do a lot of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, we, so we do have you that.
0: Shift, you know, when you shift to the wreck diving, that's when you see a lot more and different type of planning come into effect.
1: Yeah, And, there, and there's things that you have to account for. If you're coming from some place with warm water and good visibility, we've got conditions that instantly take even an easy, moderate wreck dive into extreme conditions we've got cold we've got dark we've got low visibility uh, sometimes you can have some currents even out in lake michigan you got waves so those are all things that uh, will, will increase the complexity of your dive and here we've got an article former sas trooper aims across the atlantic in a whale named moby and they say he's 73 that is, is that old no <laughs> So that's, he's, that's right. That's just at the right age. Yeah, he's just peaking. Yes. He's starting to peak. So he's, and being an SAS trooper, I wouldn't write him off. I mean, this is a guy, even at 73, I think is going to be pretty tough. Hopes to sail 3,000 miles to America in a 65-foot homemade whale. And that's not your normal vessel, a homemade whale.
0: No, I i put the picture on uh talk shoe. Oh, I had talk shoe come up. I put it on that. The uh-huh. pictures are, are really neat of uh, the whale. Yes. So anybody out there can at least see what we're talking about.
1: Yeah. That's pretty big, too. He's a big guy. I mean, that's, that's, and it's pretty hefty. I wonder how that is a sail. It does not look, it looks like wind would just play havoc with that. I was just looking at
0: that for the same reason now that you said that.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, but I like it. I think it's cool. 62 tons? Yeah, 62 oh, tons. 20 and, years to make and 100,000? So he started when he was, uh, 53. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna do that. He's got look at that paint on that. That that paint's been painted and painted and painted. He spent a hundred thousand pounds and twenty years attempting to get the vessel up to scratch. Now undertaking its final leg of preparations before attempting the journey. Sixty-two ton whale has been beached in the shore of Loch Nevis near Lochbair in the Highlands of Scotland. Which I I didn't roll my orders probably enough for that. After being built from scratch, Mr. McLean's own design. It's like. It's unlike anything I've ever done before and it's been a long time coming arriving to a huge crowd will be unbelievable swan song and my crowning achievement he has held what? records for solo rowing yachting voyages across the Atlantic first launched his 20-year project 20 years ago and estimates a hundred thousand in total bringing in steel sea uh, sea beasts to life so far the only jobs he has completed are short journeys from the west coast of Scotland I come to stick things with other people might give up Makes you feel alive to have a challenge, not just working to pay the bills. Before setting off, he must tackle moss growing on the peeling paint of the hull and leaky seal in its rudder stock, where it's currently flooding the kitchen. Yeah, that would be bad. I think you might want to get all leaking taken care of. Now they show a photo of the galley, and that's that's nice.
0: I'd want to make sure I had some really good hatches because mm-hmm. if you go below that, one, you're going to see a side view of this, which I thought was interesting, the galley's. If you're flooding that and you don't have a good bulkhead, you are going to flood your engine. If you mm-hmm. flood the engine, you're going to be screwed.
1: Yeah, I would want a couple ways out of this. I mean, if you only got one hatch in the front, that's almost like a submarine on the surface. That's
0: what it looks like.
1: Yeah. Until 2014, he held the record for a solo occupation of Rock Hall, dubbed Britain's Loneliest Outpost, which he set 40 days in 1985. He now lives in an isolated Scottish home built by him from scratch and all accessible by boat and a grueling seven mile hike. He shares his hydroelectricity powered beachside cottage with Jill, whom he has two sons, James thirty five and Ryan thirty three. The other project I never want him to do to do it, but he always convinces me he'll be fine. He he's really sailing in an art piece. This is like something that you would see in uh, in uh was it Burning Man? Like Burning yes. Man in Water.
0: Yes. All I know is I don't think I'd want to be on that in rough seas.
1: No. I, I hope he's built it tight as a submarine so it just bobs and doesn't sink. So it's all metal. Big guys can do a lot. But if you're dirty, tired, cold, everything is going wrong, you can still do it and smile under pressure. You have to not want the world you need to call your family or even think about them. If they're any good, they will still like you when you get back. <laughs> well, hopefully. How long did, did it say how long he plans to be? It, it did not say,
0: but I'd really like to know when he gets on the way and how he progresses. That's something we should really track, because we should try. this would be quite interesting.
1: We've had a few people who we've tried to track, and it seems like there's a big push right at the beginning, and then it kind of peters off, and we don't hear much. So I, I wonder, did, did, he, considering how rural he is, he might not have a website or a social media presence, maybe not even GPS. You would hope that they'd have some sort of monitoring.
0: I would think he would have at least that. I, I'd like to have seen his radio room.
1: I like the photo, the, the the diagram they have, that side view you said. Yep. So they have an open deck area, huh? So, don't, oh, so the galley's in the back. So about midship, you have the engine, which is in the bottom of the rudder. So if you imagine the whale kind of right in the middle, uh, then above that's an engine room and an open deck. So I assume from there you can go forward into the lounge. It's not clear how you get into the galley. I mean, is the galley just kind of, uh, aft off the deck? Hmm.
0: I mean, look, I don't yeah, it doesn't show the, the hatchways.
1: No. I mean, in the, the photo showing the galley, you can see there is a hatch to the back, but that could just be, I'm guessing, to storage. Okay, hmm. it, it is, it is cool though. 20 years. That's a, that's a commitment.
0: Interesting.
1: Then we have something from Discovery News. They're saying it's an article on how satellites find shipwrecks from space. That's cheating. Well, it's, it's for people who aren't diving. I'm okay with it as long as they give, if they give me the coordinates, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I, I don't mind. It's estimated that there are some 3 million shipwrecks scattered across the oceans, the quarter possibly resting in North Atlantic. Now satellites can be used to help locate these lost ships according to new research. And, and we've heard of this. There's a, We've had articles over the last two or three years of people using Google Earth to find shipwrecks. Some are known, some are unknown. And uh, the study published by the Journal of Archaeological Scientists, Marine geneal- Genealogist Matthias Bay at the Royal Belgian Institute of National Science or of Natural Science and colleagues explains the wreck produced suspended particle matter, SPM concentrated signals which can be detected by high resolution ocean color satellite data such as NASA's Landsat eight. Distinctive linear plumes of those particles extend as far as two and a half miles downstream from shallow shipwrecks and are therefore easy to detect from space. Landsat 8 data is free and therefore the method presented in the study is an inexpensive alternative to acoustic and laser survey techniques. So what this is saying is that there are particles that are stirred up by these shipwrecks that they can detect. Researchers begin to study by analyzing four known Wreck sites near port of Zeebrugge, Zeebrugge, Bruggie, Buggy, Zeebrugge? If somebody pronounces that correctly, I probably wouldn't wouldn't tie it to the word. On the Belgian coast, located three miles of each other in a sandy sea floor less than 49 feet of water, the wrecks are all civilian vessels. Two ships, the SS sandsip and the SS uh, Sam Vern, sank after being mined during World War II. The Swedish steamship Nippen-Nippen. Collided with another vessel in nineteen thirty eight while the SS Neutron, a Dutch steel cargo vessel, went down in nineteen sixty five after hitting a wreck. (laughs) Presumably the SS (laughs) Sansip. So that that's not that shallow if he if he I mean it's pretty shallow if he hit it, would Mm -hmm. you say? Using tidal Models in a set of 21 cloud-free Landsat images, the researchers mapped sediment plumes extending from the wreck locations. They found the SPM plumes originating from the site of the SANSIP and the San Vern, which had substantial portions of their structure unburied, could be traced downstream during ebb and flow tides. No SPM plumes recorded in association with the SS Neutron and the SS Nippin, which are already buried deeper in the seabed. Yeah. You know, this this makes sense, and I guess it's an alternative way. But what it's saying is that the wrecks need to be fairly well exposed, and I think they need to either be fairly shallow or in areas where you're going to bring the plume shallow. Mm-hmm. So it, it it's 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 one of the many ways you can find, but I doubt they're going to find a lot of new ones unless they're just in areas where they haven't looked before. The advantage is that all this state is there, and you know this this is a good off season thing to do.
0: Well, I just sent you something. Let's see here. Uh, submarine detection by satellite by the Russians.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I know that there was, uh, that a, a lot of submarine detection, either by satellite or even by plane, as the sub moves through the water, displaces the water and creates a bulge in yeah. the water. And they're able to measure that bulge. Uh, a lot of these, you know, ge- geological satellites actually have a alternative purpose to, to track these types of, of at this type of activity. Let me see. Did you send it to me? Oh, here it comes. So am pulling it up now. And it says U.S. Satellite shadow Chinese submarines.
0: Yeah, that's the second one. Oh, okay. Which means we already have the technology.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that one's it's, from 2010. Right,
0: like if they don't talk about a lot, you
1: know? No, no. Well, because we don't want to remind people or our adversaries or You've got this, even though we're not technically in a Cold War, you have a lot of these, oh, we're friendly, but not really friendly.
0: Yeah, big time, because the Soviets are really out in force, and so are the Chinese. But the Americans really don't hear much about it, because our politics are based on elections right now. Right. Yeah, they talked about 380 feet is what they're averaging right now in the shallows. Mm -hmm. But 360, 70, 80 feet, that's pretty significant for sport divers and wrecks.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. For a lot of the wrecks that we'd be looking for, because as as interesting as a wreck is, it's deeper than 360 feet. We're not going to get to dive it. So now you're in a whole different class of of wrecks. Yeah. We really want. I know there are five to ten wrecks within 25 miles of St. Joe that are less than 200 feet.
0: This is sort of interesting. I just looked at an article here. In the late 1900s, sub hunting satellites, 1990, mm-hmm. made headlines. American scientists. Peter Lee was caught and convicted of passing sensitive information to China about the so-called radar ocean imaging project, which involved the UK and the USA. And I didn't want to go into a lot of details, but they've been doing this for a long time. So that's what, 25, 26 years? Right. And the technology has only improved. Right,
1: right. Because, uh, well, here, here's our venture down into the, the dark side, but we, we put the Hubble telescope up to look out. Yeah. There is another duplicate to the Hubble telescope up in orbit that was pointed down.
0: Right. And did you see that brand, the, the new one they went in that's supposed to be, right. I can't remember if it was 10 times or 100 times better than the Hubble?
1: Yes. The deep so, space one? Yeah. So there there are those that are even better than that pointed up. And you, And you ask why was it pointed down? Because they're the, when they engineered the Hubble, they took advantage of the engineering to use it for spying. Sure. And the way that we have been able to validate it, so it's not a conspiracy theory, it's true, is that when NSA or whichever agency had it got done with it, they donated it to universities trying to find a university who was willing to use it. So that's how it got out, is it was like, what do you mean you have another Hubble telescope? And, and that's what happened. So it's well documented if you want to go take a look at it. I, I can't i read it a couple years ago and i can't remember who who actually has it now but uh it is it is available out there and that one i bet didn't have the eye problem that Hubble (laughs) did, or was or was fixed similarly yeah so there's a lot and that's it's all good things um you know one one thing that we're currently doing and people are surprised is that the soviet union say soviet union is no longer in existence the russians uh Actually, have spy planes. I don't. Did you know this, Mac? That fly over the U.S.
0: Yeah. Don't even start me on that one. (laughs) How we agreed to that to begin with is like I don't want to talk about it.
1: Well, see, actually, and this may be where I I differ from you. I don't. I don't really have a problem with it because we we did it because we thought if we let everybody see what we've got, then it just creates false impressions. And I, I have enough confidence that the only reason we agreed to do that is because anything. That we wanted to hide, we knew it wouldn't be seen. <laughs> so, so that's that's what the intent was. But yeah, that was that's a that's a whole nother another part. Uh, so let's see what do we got next up on the docket? Shipwreck at the bottom of the Arabian Sea, five hundred years old. That one's a little older than the shipwrecks that we happened to get at. This was the Arabian Sea. Uh, that is from the fleet of Vasco de Gama, and this is um. Let's see, I'm trying to get through all that, because it's a really good article. It's in the Washington Post, also National Geographic, Smithsonian, has it. And uh, so it says, in April 1503, a pirate squad took shore leave in Al-Halayan Island when locals warned of them a big storm on the way. Vicente and Brass decided to ignore them. The storm soon tore the ships from the mooring where the sailors were on board ship, the San Pedro, was washed ashore with most of the crew survived. Esmeralda, however, ended up in deeper waters in the bay, sinking and taking the crew, including Vicente Wither. The survivors buried the bodies they recovered in the island before salvaging what they could, including cannon. Most of the ship's other artifacts were left behind. Using that well-documented story, veteran shipwreck hunter David Mearns and Blue Water Recoveries visited the area in 1998 to look for the ship. Our t- team stood on top of the island and watched the waves come in put themselves in the place of the Portuguese where they could have anchored and where the storm would have dashed along the coastline. Uh, This, Merns tells uh, Kristen Romney at National Geographic, they snorkeled around and in about 20 minutes started seeing cannonballs that were obviously from a European ship. Researchers have amassed a fair amount of evidence to support the proposed identity of the ship. Coins in the region of Dom Manuel, including 12 gold Portuguese uh, cruzoto coins. Wow, wouldn't that be fun to find? indicate the wreck is from the same time period as esmeralda the ship bell may also hold a clue inscribed number 498 which researchers think represents the year 1498 researchers also believe the initials vs marked in the stone cannonballs or initials uh uh vince sorge uh dating the lead shot recovered from the site shows that it came from the mines in spain portugal and great britain Said so the um, the high energy wave surges the divers called washing machine the ship that's riches had been buried deep in the sand at the bottom of the sea, they did. Uh, so Muscat is saying they did find what they're looking for. Wow, that looks he fun. Have to
0: find anything remotely like that?
1: No, no, we're we're not going to find that. Even the Griffin is not going to come close. Which we find the Griffin about every two or three months, it seems like. Somebody does so for a while. A, so that's a that's a nice little find. Uh, Twenty eight hundred artifacts so far. I wonder kind of preservation they're doing on those
0: what kind of depth are they at doesn't look deep i'm looking at the blowpipe they're using obviously it's warm water there because they don't even have uh headgear.
1: now look at that limestone cannonball that's interesting is that hole where they would put like a a charge in it so it'd explode is that the idea
0: trying to find which one you're talking about
1: uh i'm looking at the smithsonian magazine one they have some really nice photos they show um let's see if you look in the show notes, it's a second link. So See, the Washington Post-Smithsonian.
0: Let me go back. I may be on the other one. Yes. Yeah.
1: And that one has some really nice photos of the divers. And, you know, they're diving without hoods. They do have gloves on. I'm going to guess that looks like 30, 40 feet maybe. Singleton, oh, yeah. You can
0: see it. Yeah, the aerial view is very, very good.
1: Yeah. they're They're just using regular 80s. Uh, you know, recreational, they're in, you know, they got wetsuits on, full wetsuits.
0: This is, this is interesting from the aspect. That cannonball? Mm-hmm. You know where you're going to find something very similar to that? No. What if I throw you in the Nile, in the St. Joe River?
1: Well, we have cannonballs like that in the St. Joe River?
0: Uh-huh. Oh, huh. darn. That's the first one I've actually seen. I, I was talking to an old, I mean, an old guy. He had to be 90 something several years ago when I was up diving, I'm not going to say where on the air here. Mm-hmm. he asked, Did I find any of the cannonballs made of stone? And I'm thinking, excuse me. And, uh, we were talking a little while and he was very conversant, very knowledgeable, described the items with the, the hole that you would put your charge in. Similar to what this appears to be. And, uh, I kept thinking of the old type devices that used it was what they is like a mortar. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with Fort Sumter?
1: Yes, yes.
0: right. The big round one so you put it in and it's like a big mortar it just kicks it out. right That would be ideal for that. Mm-hmm. Well, he actually had located some in the river and was wondering if we had ever found the cannon.
1: Ah now he, when so in the St. Joe River, who would have used stone cannon? I mean that would that would indicate that it was really old.
0: Uh you're talking 1600, 1650.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then
0: the other rumor that came out and surfaced this year was, did we find the other cannonballs? Oh. That were supposedly noted during some operations that were underheld or taking part in the river. No. And that's why I've been chomping at the bit to get back in the water. To go look in that particular area.
1: Hmm. No. Cause it, it all, you just have to be there at the time where they're exposed. Cause now like this, this limestone, if it, if you could not see some man-made, like either the hole or like this particular one that we're talking about in the photo, if you didn't see the groove. Yeah. That would just be a stone on the bottom.
0: Possibly, yes. Especially if it was buried with half of it, you'd think yeah. it was a
1: bit bolder. Yeah. And if moved. you had enough of them, you might not even realize it. I mean, yeah. it, if you had complimentary items, uh, boy, that would be a blast to find that. Oh man. Yeah. I don't blame you for wanting to get in the water for that one. And that ship's bell. I mean, that's a, that's an excellent find. These coins.
0: I'd rather find the coins in the bell. <laughs> <laughs> they're easier to put in your glove. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They say they're gold. AH 809.
0: Uh, that'd be cool.
1: Wow. Very good. Con- congratulations to them. Uh, it's, must be fun.
0: Yeah. I'm still always interested on in what is the return for investment for all of these shipwrecks.
1: I almost <laughs> didn't mention that. <laughs> Say what? I almost didn't even mention that because I was thinking the same thing.
0: Well, I mean, I, I still want to know because somebody's subsidizing it. You're yes. finding gold. Somebody's going to cash that gold then well, to help subsidize that.
1: Well, you know, the funny thing is when, when we found MaxRack, what was the one thing that some of the papers who carried that story said that was the most hits or activity they had? In their magazine ever, and it's because just how interesting these things are and what a global appeal yeah so there there's a lot of soft return on investment that can happen by this you know if you're a university uh it's interesting it gets you in the press, and then people maybe want to spend you know their their college money going to your university because you you do work on projects like this
0: i I wish we would get permission. No legal permission to dig out the nose because where that windlass is, that's mm-hmm. where the chain locker is. You need to uncover that because that's where we're going to find something to help identify what that wreck
1: was. Yes, yes.
0: And I, I really feel that that the reason we did not find the mast and the rudder is, I think it fell off because I think that's the one that rotated upside down. Mm-hmm. Everything fell off. It finally sank where we found it. We're going to find the wreckage if we go from that. To the west
1: okay so yeah, the so west would we be would up, be out would be out deeper then
0: deeper and towards a very populated area
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know where i'm talking
1: yes yes but uh the thing the advantage of going deeper is it's most likely could be still exposed
0: yes and i was always thinking how much you know the mast falling out would it have impacted the bottom and stuck oh you know what i mean yeah
1: well, maybe it'd be worth taking some time next time we're out at that site and mowing the lawn, maybe in that direction you're thinking.
0: Right, because that would also explain why the dead eyes are still on board, but none of the rigging is around us.
1: Yes, yes, very true. Well, and we know there are other objects near that location that we still have yet to find.
0: Well, we got to go back out to the Havana to find out.
1: Is you know, one or two I, wrecks. I was
0: diving at 35 years ago, it's like there are seven sections to the wreck. Blah blah blah. Well. Up until lately, the visibility has sucked out there. Yes. And this new part people are finding, well, it's new because they haven't seen it. But when you start finding taglines on it and bottles, yes, <laughs> it's not that it's not, it hasn't been found. People didn't realize it was a different part of that wreck. Well,
1: well, and, and for people who don't know, we're talking about, there's a wreck called the Havana. It's probably the most dove wreck in between St. Joe and South Haven. Most popular. It's a big, nice beginning wreck relatively shallow uh wreck but it's it's been well dove well documented but we uh everybody seems to dive a different part of it
0: and the sand covers it up and sometime you don't find diddly squat and then sometime last couple of years we've been finding more and more and more of it
1: yeah yeah so you have we're rediscovering what people have been diving and the funny thing is before gps and everybody was doing loran you you had your general coordinates you would drag an anchor till you snag something and that's what you would dive so there are three or four different groups who could be diving the same wreck but diving different parts of it and maybe many of us have not dove the whole thing until last year uh so i I personally think it's the same wreck there's still a few in the club who think it might be two I mean it'd be exciting if it's two but
0: well I know there's a there's a sailboat out there but I have never found it we dove it one dive turned into a night dive and we came up on way the hell off where the boat was anchored. Mm-hmm. And we had just been inside of another vessel that had broken bottles down to like a galleyway.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: was not the Havana. And <laughs> we have never found that one again.
1: Wow. I mean that's it's almost like the ghost ship. Yes. Yeah. So something opened up and you found it. Uh and that and that can be the case of it. That in, in people don't understand how we have so many wrecks. Go down your roads, see semis going down and think we had the equivalent on the Great Lakes of ships. So there were a lot of them and many didn't, you know, many sank. Some weren't adequately documented when they went down. So there, I think there's probably twice as many wrecks as we even give credit to.
0: Yeah. It does depend on which one you look at. If you look at the grand totals, estimates go from 6,000 to 15,000. The standard is a little over 10,000 wrecks in the Great Lakes.
1: And, and let's go ahead and cover that right now. We have, uh, Shipwreck Hunter explores Graveyard of the Great Lakes. So, uh, the, what they're referring to is, uh, you know, Shipwreck Diver Extraordinaire Researcher David Trotter, and he's got a new documentary. It's ailing. It's airing on Detroit Public TV, Graveyard of the Great Lakes, a Shipwreck Hunter's quest to discover the past and examines more than a hundred shipwrecks he's found. Sailors have been, uh, in the Great Lakes since the 1600s. Uh, the Shipwreck Museum estimates roughly 6,000, uh, vessels lost and more than 30,000 sailors lost beneath the wave of uh, the freshwater lakes. Uh, I'm thinking it's, it's more like you were saying, Mac. I'm, I'm thinking it's got to be more than 10,000, maybe 20,000.
0: It's a lot because I don't really count. You got to remember in, in the early days, it was called Coasties uh-huh. and Coasty because they didn't have radar. They didn't have good directions and they didn't have good boats and they didn't want to go the old saying is don't swim, don't go offshore any further than you want to swim inland or back to shore. So they went around. So if a storm came up, they'd beached a darn boat because they could always undo it later. Right. And sometime beaching it wasn't enough.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's sometimes where ships have sunk several times and you know, that, that counts. And then there are other times where they've just gone lost or intentionally sunk. I mean, there's been plenty of those. So, um, and, and I have to make sure I get caught up in the show notes cause he's, they've got a link. So on Vimeo, uh, we've got a video and it shows 50 minutes, but some of the shipwrecks, and I'm assuming these are all found by Trotter. Yeah. The SS Daniel Morrell, uh, the Keystone Slates, the New York, the James B. Coolidge, which is a whaleback. Uh, whaleback almost looks like a submarine riding on the surface. SS Hydrus, SS Isaac M. Scott, SF GP Griffin. And how did he find these wrecks? He looked for them and spent a lot of money and time finding them. So I look forward to, to watching the video. I haven't had a chance to, to to watch it, but it's available out there.
0: Yeah, Trotter is about 75 now, and uh, he started diving in 1963. And like you said, he has he basically spends his life on the water.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Is he married? Yes. And she must be very understanding or <laughs> there, happy he's at sea.
0: Look out there about some of the older guys. Uh-huh. Yeah, you got to read it because it, it took a little bit for the family. Yeah, because you come Thursday. I mean, it's just like jumping. Sometimes people start. Well, Saturday's good. I can get off early. Sunday or Thursday. Let's start out Thursday night, and then they come home late Sunday. So how <laughs> the
1: family life suffered a bit. I would think so. And then you've got some articles on uh methane gas.
0: Yeah, I sent those to you. I don't have them here on mine. I okay. can try to refine them. Yeah, I,
1: I've got them. One is, uh, and what we're referring to is giant gas bubbles explaining the mystery of the Bermuda triangle. And these were three different articles talking about that. And what some of the thought is, is that if you, if you followed this last season in Siberia, they've had these giant, I mean, I guess you gotta call them sinkholes or craters that have formed. And what they're saying is that methane gas. You can have like a methane hydrate, which is like frozen, and it goes from this frozen solid state to gas and just blows blows up. So you have, if that happens underwater, which they're saying as the Earth changes, that these things can happen and blow, you know, put a lot of bubbles in. The, the idea is that if this happened underwater and you were a vessel going over this, the density of the water with these with the gas in it would be enough to make you sink. So you you found a variety of articles talking about this.
0: Right. And a couple of them actually showed a methane or a leaking. I don't know if there's a man-made or whatever, Mm -hmm. but they brought a boat over and tried to let it sink. Mm -hmm. And the only reason it sank is because the agitation and kept getting water over the back end of it. Eventually it did sink. But the theory is you get that massive explosion. So you get all this bubbles at one time. Mm -hmm. If you could replicate it, you would sink because you just don't have the buoyancy factor anymore. Yeah. And once you've got the water coming off the gunnels,
1: you're screwed. Yeah. It, Mythbusters did an episode on this, and they tried to sink it. The one thing they found, because they did like bubblers, and they yep. found that the the process of the bubbling created a current that actually kept you from sinking. So even though the water density was less buoyant or, or less dense, so it, it made you less buoyant, the current or the upwelling that was related to the bubbles coming up r- rose you up. But I I do believe... There's a certain type of eruption. I mean, imagine if you just displaced half the water with like a solid bubble. I could see that breaking you up. Or if it wasn't even over your vessel, because vessels aren't tremendously flexible. I mean, the Titanic proved that there are situations where brittleness can not be your friend. And we've got many of uh, early steel vessels in the Great Lakes that sunk because of, you know, waves having a trough that came out under the bottom.
0: I like to listen to some of the versions that you can hear about. This is by uh, a lady by the name of Flora and she works at the Galactic Federation of Light.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and it, it basically says the Bermuda Triangle is a six level water vortex leading to the hollow earth that opens whenever it gets activated. Sinkholes all over different parts of the world for entrances or openings portals to the inner earth made by and will also be used by the uh, Garthians, a highly advanced civilization inside the crust of the earth, to emerge to the surface when the time for disclosure is right. Remember that the earth is hollow. The time for earth's transmission, transformation is near. Not all can be explained from a scientific point of view, but from a spiritual point of view as well. Expect the unexpected.
1: So that's an interesting. <laughs> yes. That is an interesting perspective. Yeah. I mean, everybody's entitled to their beliefs. Uh, that's not one that I happen to share with her.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, there's some other ones. I like this one. This guy here works at a diff, golf disc disc golf area. He says, first off, the earth is not a hollow. Second, if you believe there's a subhuman race known as, uh, so whatever, living inside the earth, you're just all right crazy and off your rockers.
1: <laughs>
0: it, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, like... <laughs> <laughs> oh not to make fun but that is entertaining
0: i know but i love the ufos better than that though
1: yeah we have to get some more of those maybe we, maybe we need a ufo podcast we can we can be the art bell we need Muf- more water move yes yeah we need we need more underwater ufos i mean if you're gonna hide why not hide someplace where we tend not to go <laughs> i mean that's a place to hide i tell you oh yeah yeah Okay, and I think we do have a video.
0: I have one question. You don't know what MUFON stands for, right?
1: MUFON sounds like something that you do not want to have bump into you.
0: <laughs> it's Mutual UFO Network. It's what that stands for. Yeah. It's really neat to listen to. I mean, well, hey, come fun. on. I like all sorts of weird stuff.
1: When I worked nights, I used to listen to Art Bell. And there were times where, you know, depending on who he had on, you could kind of you kind of get into it. And it seemed like, and I think he scheduled this way, that it was kind of like a little hook where they tried to get you to kind of go. Oh, I guess that's possible. And then about four weeks in, you, you 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 know, if you were gullible, you could buy into it. But at some point, you had to just like shake yourself awake and go, "This is insane." <laughs> what they're trying to pitch, you know? Yeah, was, the
0: Earth is flat.
1: Yeah. So I think I've heard that too. Yes. Well, the funny thing about the Earth is flat is that, is is I have a hard time figuring out are they really serious or are they just like. Being ornery and deciding that they're going to prove something that they know is not true.
0: How many years ago was it? Was it true? It was heresy if you didn't believe it.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I've even heard stories that even back then they knew it wasn't really flat. It was more of a position to take. Yeah.
0: As as they're crucifying you or putting you into the iron maiden. Yeah, you know, when, uh, when they
1: when the... they break out, I'm the first one to admit to whatever they want me to admit to. <laughs> you know, I would not be the guy who is going to suffer uh the torturing what what did you want me to say sure you want me to name three people you know well, we got mac we got jim they're all crazy <laughs> take them first
0: that's why i got my 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 name is under your picture yes
1: <laughs> and then we have a video where it's the flint scuba divers doing an underwater egg and spoon race for sports relief let me see if I can pull this one I've up. I've done
0: it on the surface. I can't imagine what it is like underwater.
1: You know, anything underwater is fun. I, uh, I keep thinking we've got to do something. I want to sink something, do something. We got to, we got to get something going on. Watch the Flintshire race. They've got a video. It shows, uh, scuba divers in a bid to race cash for sports relief with an underwater egg and spoon race. Remember the Flintshire Sub-Aquatic Club staged a hilarious series of sponsored relay events that included a sack and three-legged race. Five teams made up, four divers took part in the unusual fundraiser at the club's Hollywell Leisure Center Pool. Club Secretary and Welfare Officer Dave Schiner said members were keen to do something fun and had spent the last few weeks practicing to get their technique right using ceramic eggs instead of real ones to avoid breakages in the pool. Yet it's not easy to run underwater, especially bouncing an egg in a spoon. It means divers have to use a lot more weight so they're negatively buoyant and we couldn't actually use eggs in case they broke and contaminated the water. The sack race was anything but easy. It was a lot of fun and three-legged race involved divers having their legs fastened together but were allowed to use fins on their free leg. It was definitely hard work but a lot of fun. Everyone had a great time raising money. is definitely a worthwhile cause.
0: That's even better if you got a viewport under the water so people
1: can see it. Yeah, I see, the Bridgman Pool has a viewport.
0: Oh yeah, over in the deep end.
1: Yeah. Well, well if you had enough GoPros, that could be good. Oh yeah. Uh, or, better
0: yet, let's put a couple of cameras under and and have the video on the on the wall.
1: Yeah. So the Flintshire Sub Aquatic Club has 55 active members as a branch of the British Sub Aqua Club. The B S A C chief executive, Mary. Tutley said the sports relief is a fantastic cause, and I know how much fun Flintshire Sub-Aquatic Club members had raising the much-needed money for the special charity. BSAC Divers are by nature socially responsible, whether they're raising funds for good causes or protecting our marine environment for future generations. Their website is www.flintsac.co.uk, and then they're accepting donations at Sports Relief Challenge, the club's fundraising page. So good for them. Glad they were able to do it look like they had fun at the same time and they have to be they're in the northern hemisphere so they're coming on their diving season just like we are Yep. so that does it for scuba in the news let's see we still have vanessa still hanging out in the chat room uh again drop us a line if you wanted to be in the chat room we'd like to thank wrvo radio for putting us on the air again another season if you're interested in the outdoors fishing hunting Anything like that, you want to check out WRVO Radio, Reno Viola Outdoor Network. If you want to get a link to their site, go to scubaobsess.com. Scroll all the way down to the footer on the left side. You can see their brand new logo that was just added in the last week. It's one of the few things that have been updated on our, our website. Mud Club is mudclub.scubaobsess.com. You can see the goings-on of the Michigan Underwater Divers Club. And we are just now getting into the diving season. Now, Mac, did you get any diving in the last couple of weeks? Actually, I have not
0: because I don't have anybody to go with me, but, uh, Kevin was out in South Haven off the piers, uh, two weeks ago. excuse excuse me. Jesus bless you. Uh, actually in the middle of the week. Yes. And, um, it was, uh, he was out there had still had dirty ice out there right now.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, 41 degrees, three foot visibility, uh, he got 35 minutes of bottom time on that, and then Bob was out last week, mm-hmm. and he also did a solo dive on the pier, mm-hmm. and that would be on the uh, south pier. Yeah. And he said the vis there was from six inches to six feet, generally into two to three feet, 40 degrees. Uh, he said the lack of fish was amazing. Yep. Which is unusual. So I'm I'm curious about that.
1: But but the the fisherman uh, still decided that he was worth bringing in.
0: Well, true, true. When somebody grabs your flag and starts hauling it in, you're attached. You come with it. Yeah. So, uh, so a little fun <laughs> and games for a little bit. Yep. And then uh, we were also talking about safety and planning your dive. Uh-huh. Uh, Kevin went out again with Dan to dive the iron tights. And because uh, a lot of times this time of year, you will have great visibility. Well, they got off there and looking at the marine forecast. It was good. But what was on shore and way offshore was not what was near the wreck. They had high winds. Um, and they, they decided it would better not to dive it because the winds increased gusting to 30. And if you're down there and your anchor drifts, that yes. could be a bad day.
1: Yes. Yeah. Cause you only have two divers. So if you're diving in teams, it's a deep wreck, even with a bailout and the buoy is not up yet. That, that wreck's not buoyed. No. So you're you're just at an anchor, and you have to have a lot of line to have your proper amount of line out. got of have a lot a, of
0: scope and something like that.
1: Yeah. So you got 120. You're down 125 feet. So you've got to have 600 feet, and then, and and strong waves like that, you'd want more. And that's still not a guarantee you're not going to pull. A, you're not going to pull your anchor. Yeah. So and that's they,
0: a long, long way down, a long way back.
1: Yeah. And so it's prudent to just call it. I mean, it was nice that they're able to get out. I'm personally a little surprised that they were tempting it that early in the season because all us older guys we usually like to ease into it. So we would do Havana, uh, you know, maybe a few other wrecks, maybe even the Ann Arbor Five.
0: Yeah, now they did do their deep chamber dive.
1: Yes, they. So interpretation they.
0: Interpretation for this part here.
1: Yep, and I think that's good. That, that that certainly from uh just understanding how you react to depth, that's a good thing to do. Uh, so you did get that that pressure. Uh, but a lot of it's just that muscle memory and getting everything all in, but they felt comfortable and they're, they're younger guys. So, uh, they felt good, but they did the prudent thing. Cause they said the the Coast Guard met them co- <laughs> as they were coming in. The Coast Guard saw them coming in and they also turned around. So I think the Coast Guard was kind of a little curious what they were, uh, doing. They're, they're getting ready to, the to, to, to fish out the foolish guys. I think Kevin said when he's, when they saw that he, they had on dry suits, they didn't look as worried as they were originally.
0: Yeah. But it's nice that
1: they were out there paying attention
0: to what's going on.
1: Yeah, I like, it. it's, it's good. And, and it's, and really for them, it's good practice. It, I'm sure that it's got to be some boring days. And, uh, you know, we, we do not want to be the guys that you're rescuing, but we're glad to see that you're there able to. Help Absolutely. Us.
0: And I don't care if they do come aboard my boat and check for, or no, for the boat I'm on more no. power to you. Cause I want to make sure you have the right stuff. I may need it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we've last year, I think every one of our boats got. Stopped Stopped. at least once. Yep. And the most common offense was out-of-date flares. Flares, yep. So, and what they recommend is all your flares don't have to be in date, just one of them. So, you want to do every year is do a flare buy, check the date on your flare, put it in there. Because you can have 8, 10, 20, 30 flares, because they really don't go bad, but they have to put an expiration date, and they have to check, and if they're expired, that's a violation. I don't know if they really give that many tickets out. I haven't heard anybody really had any fines they've had to pay, but it's really a service to make sure you're okay. Now, if you don't have life jackets or other things, I think it could be. And there's also, I've heard of some, there's some gray area about really who has jurisdiction, but we're not going to complain because it's it's good for them to to help everybody be safe.
0: Yep, and Wolf's open house is next, this weekend. Yes. So if you buy your flares every year at the open house, you always know you got
1: clean ones and new ones. Yes. Uh Now, you didn't get a chance to go to Chicago, did you? I
0: did not. I elected not to. I looked through the courses and the materials and, uh, there was not anything I really wanted to attend to. Uh, we did have several people go. I have not talked to Kevin, but he went. Jim did go and talked about it at the club meeting. Uh, he also got food poisoning while he was there. So he had an unpleasant 24 hour period.
1: Yeah. He said he was, he was happy that the hotel was accommodating.
0: Yes. Uh, Kevin also did go to the, um Ann Arbor One and he should be going to the, uh, ghost ships also Saturday.
1: Yeah. If you're going to ghost ships, look him up. He, uh, jo- you know, join in the mud club Facebook page and you can connect with him there. He's been, he's, he's heading up. So that's going yeah. on this weekend.
0: And he will be trying out the uh, rebreathers, which oh, is a gosh. really,
1: really good opportunity. He, those guys, they're making me jealous. You know, he, he he's, cause he actually, he, he's gotten his boat in the water a couple times already. Here we are this time of year unfortunately i don't think we broke the record we usually by our, our record is like march 23rd uh for being on the havana i don't know if he quite beat that uh, he's been in the lake so that counts but they haven't they haven't gotten out to a shipwreck yet oh we did have a good start though yeah so we're looking forward to this this is this should be a good diving season
0: yeah i'm looking forward to the river though i love the river
1: so, uh, Vanessa in the chat room says, tell Mac you can look at the shop I work at, La Jolla Dive, lots of pictures depending on how often she does dive tours.
0: Okay, great.
1: So thank you, Vanessa. We'll, we'll take a look at that. Uh, also see people throughout the world. We have, uh, Tara down in New Zealand. I, I see her on Facebook from time. I wonder how her diving season is going down in New Zealand. They should be about wrapping up for the year. They're, yeah, you know, as we're coming into our season, they're, they're going out, uh, Let's see. Do we have, do we have anything else? Anything we want to plug? Like you said, we have the mud, not the mud club, but the wolves is having their spring open house this weekend. Yep. Uh, we've got another event that I think the mud club is going to be doing. Uh, was it the Baptist church sports program? One of them in the area. Yeah. It's tentative.
0: That's in April, I believe the 23rd. Uh, we still got to coordinate how many people because of all the dates, several people have conflicting items for that yes. same Saturday.
1: Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm, I may be in Missouri, depending on how the robotics team does. Uh, yeah, cause I did not, cause it was a, it was her, Mary Beth's grand, uh, grandbaby's first birthday. So you hate for her to miss that because she feels like she needs to to go yeah. and do the club. So hopefully she won't, we, she
0: won't miss that. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping that. Jim's got to be working. Yep. So all our normal standbys are not available.
1: So, so hopefully we can get somebody to, to take that. Uh, but we're getting that time of year, and we want to hear what you're diving. You know, drop us a line on Facebook, drop us a line on the website. You can give us feedback at the show at scubaobsessed.com. And see, I, th- I think that pretty much runs through everything we got to plug. Visit your dive shops. We're, we're getting to the point now, if you haven't got your stuff in, uh, you need to get it in. You know, double double check all your tanks. Uh, make plans for getting them visualized, to, you know, visit. if uh, it hasn't been done. In a year, it needs to be done. A lot of times, if you run like me, it always seems like I'm such a cheapskate that they start going bad like June or July. So maybe take the advantage and get them done early. In fact, I got a tank at Wolf's I got to pick up. Uh, also, other podcasts. Uh, I need to call up uh, Rich Shinewick at Diver Sink. So if you're into the podcast and you know one little over an hour of us isn't enough, make sure you check out Diver Sync. He's still podcasting. And then Pod Diver, I think they're still active, and there's a few others I've I've heard of. I'll have to double-check, make sure they're still active, and we'll do some shout-outs on the air. So I think it's that time of the show. Are you ready? Yes, sir. During its heyday, the Wells Fargo Company employed a number of specialized stagecoaches, such as one with a church for Sunday operations. One of the more popular models featured a darkroom on board, so passengers who took pictures could have them processed en route, and the prints developed at their destination. One day, a stagecoach, equipped to the darkroom, was headed for Wichita when passing through a small town. It was intercepted by a local marshal who said, Halt! In the name of the law! What's the problem? The stagecoach driver asked. You should know that the operation of the mobile darkroom is illegal in Kansas, the marshal said. At this point, two psychologists on horseback arrived at the scene. One of them said, I suppose that we have here is a classic case of Oedipus Complex. The other said, no, it's much simpler than that. It's just, just an arrested stage of development. <laughs> so we did promise they would be bad.
0: <clears throat> I had one those little cracking orange
1: whatever <clears throat> Maybe a little bang of a donkey or something would be appropriate. Yeah. So until next week go out there and get wet
0: and stay safe.
1: completed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.